The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that come from loss. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please go to my host page at Voice America, and you'll find all your favorite ways to connect, Twitter, Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn. Thank you to all of you who've asked questions, suggested guests, and let me know what you think of the show. I'm really moved by how many of you are listening. Today, I'm welcoming Mariana Cacciatore. Mariana is host of the Voice America radio show, Ordinary People Doing Extraordinary Deeds, and Chief Inspiration Officer, I love that title, at Bread for the Journey, a nonprofit philanthropic organization with 26 locations in North America. She's also an author and public speaker. Her book, Being There for Someone in Grief, is being used as a hospice guide for hospice volunteers and as a textbook for those learning to work with people in grief. She writes a weekly blog for Bread for the Journey and speaks to audiences on the subjects of grief, generosity, resilience, resourcefulness, perseverance, hope, recovery from homicide, and the power of love. She serves as a lifetime emeritus board member of Tu Nidito, Your Little Nest, the parent agency for the organization she founded called Children to Children, a center for children and families in grief. Tunedito is in Tucson, Arizona, where it remains one of the most beloved social service agencies in South Arizona. Mariana, I'm so glad to have you back on the show to talk about your work. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm really pleased. I'm still so grateful that you interviewed me about my own story for the first show. It, it really started off the show well, I think, because... That was our, fun. Yeah, it was very fun. And our connection in terms of grief made a di- big difference to me in feeling comfortable talking mm. about my own story. So thank mm. you very much for that. You're welcome. And now we're here to talk about you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to share with the listeners, have them hear a little bit more about what you've been up to lately, what you've been doing. When I read, when I got your bio biography for the show... I was so aware that what you're doing is kind of evolving and growing and changing right now. So can you get us up to date? Sure. Well, um, it's kind of a mix of things. But, you know, for years I ran, I founded the center, uh, uh, you know, in Tucson, Arizona called Children to Children, where we served 
children and the adults connected to them who are grieving a death of someone they love. And, you know, and for years before that, my world was kind of immersed in my own grief, um, whether I was spending my time <laughs> stuffing it down <laughs> or uh, processing it. So, you know, when I moved to California in 97, um, I began working with Bread for the Journey, which is a philanthropic organization whose vision statement is to nurture the seed of generosity in every human heart. And for the last 16 years, have really been immersed in the work of generosity. What does it mean to become a person who is generous of spirit? And what's happening now is that there is this um, connection between these two diverse things. We think they're not connected. You know, we don't think of grief and generosity in the same uh, breath. But um, because I have lived both so deeply, I have seen how intimately connected they are. And so I'm in the place where I'm considering creating something I would call the Center for Grief, Generosity, and Love. And um, not 100% sure yet. I'm talking to people about this, and my ideas are well-formed. I'm just trying to see if there's a, you know, if, 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 if I'm getting thumbs up from people that are uh, connected in heart to the work that we would be doing if I were to, to go in that direction. Mm. Just just the title, though, does kind of give me a warm feeling down my center. Mm-hmm. Uh, those three words together, mm-hmm. uh, I, I love them being connected in the title like that. Well, I'll tell you how it is that they come together, in, in my world anyway. And I see, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback around this. I have a talk that I call, you know, Grief, Generosity, and Love. So, the way that it has worked for me is, um, and I've seen it with many people I've come in contact with in my work here at Bread for the Journey, uh, having first gone through a profound loss and finally coming to the place where I actually felt the loss and experienced my own deep grief around it. Uh, what happened there was that the 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 I, I I developed humility, I developed compassion, I came to know what empathy was, I felt that the world became a level playing field. Like we're none of us are um, immune from the. From loss, from grief and loss, mm. it's it's the it levels the playing field mm-hmm. and all equal uh, on that score. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, to my, I guess my compassionate self, maybe had always been there, but it became I became aware of it and more awake to it and more engaged with it during the time that I was experiencing my grief and loss and. Uh, I remember when my therapist said to me, uh, you're, you're, you're done for now. You know, you may want to come back into therapy again in the future, but I feel like you're really ready to just stop at this point and just live your life. What is it that you want to do? 
And the next words that just kind of came right out of my mouth were, I want to create a center for children and their families grieving a death. I want children in my community and in communities everywhere to grieve as close to the time of the death as possible, to not have to carry around these unresolved feelings that create such a problem in your life. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I did. I went on to create the center that you uh, spoke about in the introduction to Nidita. Well, it was, I called it Children to Children, and now it is merged with a, a larger organization called Tunidito. Mm. And, um, and so this kind of movement from grief to generosity is what I now, because I spent the last 16 years so immersed in the world of generosity, I now see it very clearly. That really what happens is... Um, that we experience this grief, this loss, we, we actually feel the feelings connected to it. And there comes a moment that happens many, many times, a moment when the clouds part and you, you sort of wake up and the sky is blue. You notice mm. again that the sky is blue and you feel some degree of spaciousness and healing that you haven't felt in a long time. And the very next impulse one has is generosity. You want to do something, whether it's something small like, you know, putting a sweet note in your child's lunchbox or, you know, something big, uh, like create a center for mm. grieving kids, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, there and anything in between. But it happens, like I said, many times, you know, you'll go back under in a period of grief and you'll come back out. And if we're what I'm wanting people to become aware of, just to wake up to that trajectory that it happens with many, many people. And if you're awake to it, you can reinforce it. And what we know now about uh, the neuroplasticity of the brain is that when we actually do take action on that generosity, um, many times we begin to build neural pathways in the brain that uh, become deeply grooved, that bring generosity into your life in a way that is incredibly, deeply, profoundly fulfilling and important and enlightening. And again, repeatedly, what, what eventually then does happen is that there comes a moment when you have an enlightenment kind of experience where you just feel like you are in love. Mm. And I mean in the heart of love. You, you, I, I remember for me it happened, you know, the one moment when my girlfriend, who I love very much, worked with me at Children to Children called, and she said, how are you? And the words that came out of my mouth were, I feel like I am in love with every living thing on the planet. <laughs> And, you know, you do, you, it doesn't stay, I mean, we're human beings, but you never forget it. Mm -hmm. It is a moment where you are in a sense of awe and, like I say, in love. So, I want to, if I do create this center, it will be called the Center for Grief, Generosity and Love, I believe, and... Uh, the con contribution I hope I can make to the world of grief is this wider landscape that paints a picture that isn't quite so dark and scary and foreboding and forever. So, yeah, yeah. anyway. And, and, and within that, there's no bypass. 
you know, you're you're talking. That's right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you've got to go through it. <laughs> but the idea that uh, I think every guest who's been on my show shares is that there's an outgrowth of that that you can't possibly imagine. That's right. If you're courageous enough to, or, uh, you know, it just takes you away. Sometimes people can't help but be courageous enough, and other people kind of consciously choose to be courageous enough to put their foot on that trail. Uh, but it leads somewhere. Yeah, um, that's I what I hear things, in what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, it depends on the depth of the loss. It depends on how emotional a person you are, how many times you have been disappointed in your life. There's all these factors that lead to whether or not grief just comes and sweeps you away <laughs> or whether or not you have to you know, stand up and say, I'm going to be courageous enough to walk into this territory mm-hmm. and let myself feel it. And I'm also aware that the book you've written is another kind of outgrowth, at least it seems so to me, right. um, being, right. being there for someone in grief. Uh, I, I really love the way your story, which we will talk about more in the next segment, but uh, that your story was woven in and out of a book you wrote to help people be there for others. Uh, because I, I, I think the grieving person trusts another griever. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's true. So that it's was, true. did you experience that as that kind of generous outpouring at the time or... Uh, I'm assuming you look at it that way. At you know, it's point. interesting. It's interesting. You know, when I spoke with people who were in the publishing world, um, there were more than one person looked at some one of the early drafts of the manuscript and said, you know, you need to make a decision. Are you going to write a book that's a how-to book? Or are you going to write a memoir? And... Um, Every time I heard it, I felt like I know I know these people are more experienced than me about the world of publishing, but they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I just I really could not I just admit books that I had read in which people inserted their own life and told me intimate stories about their own life made whatever it was they were talking about that they were teaching me more real. And it made it easier to read. It wasn't such a dry piece of information. It was filled with story and heart and soul. And um, and so I just, I made a decision, you know, the best I could do was uh, write it in a way that, you, you know, you get a little bit of my story at the beginning and then the rest of my story is woven in and out of you know, the little pieces of the story of children to children and the families that we worked with, the children and adults, and the lessons that I tried to teach in that. Um, I'll tell you, you know, the decision to write that book came about because um, the groups that I primarily ran at Children to Children were adult groups. I was part of the children's thing, but I never was the facilitator of those. We had people who were much more skilled at working with kids than me running them. I would just participate. But I did run adult groups. And um, the thing that I consistently found every, I mean, year after year, the, 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 the statement I heard spoken in different ways most often to me by the adults were went something like this. Um, I feel so heard 
and seen here. And I don't know why, but n- none of my, you know, the people who love me can do this for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, you know a, a sibling or a friend or a spouse, um, you know, people are either, you know, trying to fix me or, or they're running away or they're completely uncomfortable with my tears or they're making demands, you know, you need to be here for Christmas. We are worried about you if you don't, co- you know. Um, so uh, that was my vow when I, when I left Children to Children I, I promised them that I would write a book in their honor uh, that would be a guidebook for lay people on how to be there in a way that is welcomed um, and kind and, and helpful. Mm-hmm. That's really the impetus for writing the book. And it does have that quality of giving some... Uh, you know, some kind of directions, uh, and I mean that in the road sense, <laughs> not instructions, but a, right. a sense of direction um, without saying, do it this way. Uh, you know, I sort of felt as I was reading it, it, it more was saying, it's okay, you can't get it that wrong if you just remember to be there. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So and that, then how to be there? What happens? And, and what? what, what, what yes. Yeah. What? What the obstacles are that rise um, that stop us from being able to be there, and to let that be okay, and um, to trust the process. That's you know that's really one of my biggest messages: to really trust the process. Absolutely. So, although you didn't directly, uh, weren't directly thinking about it, that's a good example of kind of a generous act. Because I'm sure it wasn't easy to write, you know, because mm-hmm. writing a book is not easy. But right. it's a kind of generous act that you were committed to out of your own process. Right. Um, That's exactly right. Thank you for saying that. And I do appreciate it. Of course. And our first break is here. That was so fast. <laughs> it was. During the break, please be sure to go to the Good Grief Host page at Voice America. And to find out more about Mariana Cacciatore's work, go to marianacacciatore.com where you can purchase the book, and breadforthejourney.org, either slash blog to find her blog, or slash radio to find the radio show that she does for Voice America. After the break, we'll be talking more about Mariana's own loss, grief, grief, and healing. Back then. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today I'm speaking with Mariana Cacciatore about her lifelong relationship to an early loss, the murder of her best friend, and how it led her to found a children's center for grieving children, to write a book entitled Being There for Someone in Grief, and whose work today continues to be deeply informed by her own experience of grief. So let's talk about that loss, Mariana, a little more. Uh, sure. You were very young, and I got the feeling left somewhat alone with the experience. Can you tell us kind of the what happened and how that affected you? Sure. Well, I think uh, the best place to begin is uh, with the friendship. Susan and I uh, met each other uh, when we were eight, and um, from the day that we met, we were, the moment we met, we just clicked. Uh, I had moved to a new neighborhood. I had spent the summer meeting, you know, sort of systematically going from house to house, meeting people, trying to find a new best friend that would be somewhat close to the best friend I had in the neighborhood I moved from. (laughs) And the end of summer came and I really, you know, just hadn't found anybody that really, you know, struck my fancy. And I was sitting on my stoop, just dejected, actually, one day, three days before school was about to begin. And this girl drove her bike up my driveway and she had been spending the summer with cousins in another city but she was a neighbor and the minute she jumped off her bike we just started talking and it was like we had known each other forever we I jumped on my bike she brought me you know over to the school and showed me you know what the classroom we would be in that we were in the same grade our birthdays were nine days apart We were just, you know, mat- we were like magnets. and Two peas um, in a pod, even. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so it went like that for about three years. Um, I don't remember ever really even having a fight with her. We just had had a really close relationship. So the summer between, uh, six, uh, between fifth and sixth grade, um, three years later, um, Susan Susan began uh, experimenting with swearing, and I went along, you know, uh, um, just because that's what friends do, but I was a little less comfortable with it. My parents spoke Italian. My parents didn't speak 
I didn't hear them swear. I didn't hear swear words in my house. I'm sure they probably did swear from time to time, but they but 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 they spoke Italian as well as English. So I think if they had to swear, they probably switched <laughs> languages. <laughs> we had no idea, right? So, uh, so anyway, I had you know I had come from a parish before moving to that neighborhood where I had had to go to church every single day, and um, I think that whole. Catholic thing had just been indoctrinated. I had just been indoctrinated into it in a much deeper way than her. And I, every t- every day that we would swear, I'd have nightmares at night, thinking that um, thinking that I would die before I had a chance to confess my sin, which was the swear the swear word that I spoke that day. And if I were to die without going to confession, I would end up in either lim- limbo or purgatory or hell, depending on how bad the word was, I suppose. Anyway, long story short, I just, I was having a harder and harder time every time we swore, and I was afraid to tell her, and I finally got my nerve up one day, and I I, I broke the news to her on the way home from school. It was the end of December, and we were about to go on break for Christmas, and um, I knew we'd be swearing more, and I finally just got my courage up and told her I couldn't couldn't swear with her anymore. And instead of understanding, she, she made fun of me, and I got mad, and she didn't back down, and by the time we got to her house, we were standing in front screaming at each other, and she said, fine, I'll go play with Chris after school today, and I said, fine, see if I care. Of course, I cared deeply, but I couldn't couldn't act like it. And um, you know, she played with another friend after school. It was the first time that had ever happened. That friend lived an, uh, a mile away. She stayed a little bit too long. It was the winter solstice, um, the longest night of the year. It had begun to snow, and my friend walked her halfway home. And somewhere between halfway and home, she was kidnapped. And uh, she was missing for two months. And when they finally found her body, you know, it was her body. She had been dismembered and burned. And um, who knows all that happened on that horrible night. Um, But, you know, it was 1965 and nobody in my community or in my family knew what to do with grief. And I was, you know, first of all, I felt responsible because we had had this fight that I had initiated. I mean, I hadn't initiated a fight. I initiated a boundary that uh, turned into an argument. And, but I, I didn't know enough about anything at that young age to know all it felt like to me was that I, I had, I had started something that ended with her murder. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't tell anybody about the fight because that would mean I have to tell someone about the swearing and uh, I was already feeling responsible and I and I I was sure that I would be held responsible in the eyes of many other people and I knew I couldn't handle that so I had both the grief and a secret and um, and when I looked around uh, the way I was feeling I couldn't see one person who looked like that. You know, people people were crying, but 
I didn't see a lot of it. I, I, you know, I saw little tiny teary things every now and then. And mostly people who were the adults in my life felt like they had to keep a, you know, uh, um, to be the adults and to have a stiff upper lip and, and go on with their lives. And they, I mean, you know, they thought that was the right thing to do. And sometimes it is, you know, you want to know that the adults in your life are strong. But at the same time, you also want to know that something as big as this, you know, it touches people in a way that's deep and profound and painful because sure. that's how you're feeling and you want to know that other people are feeling the same way you feel. Otherwise, what happened for me was I felt like there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And so what I did with that was I just made myself stuff it. I mean, the phrase that I told myself was make it go black, make it go black, make it go black, make it go black. And that was my way of taking all that emotional, you know, work that needed to be done and bury it very, very deeply. Sounds almost like a mantra you had for denial. It was. (laughs) It was. It was. And, you know, I could I could maintain fairly well during the day, but at night when I crawled into bed, you know, I was alone with all my thoughts in the dark of the room and, you know, every, that. so that's when I would repeat the mantra again and again and again before I went to sleep. You can imagine. I, it makes me think of something I heard once. Children are perfect observers and terrible interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> so true! <laughs> So true. So, so true. you you had it right about what you were seeing, but what that meant, right, was was not what you thought. That's why we need adults in our life who understand this process and can be with kids uh, through it. You know, uh, as strong as I learned, I was uh, many, many, many years later. Uh, had I been able, had I had an adult guide with me through that process to feel my own particular strength, um, I I would have, I would certainly have made my way through that experience and um, in a very different way than I did. Mm -hmm, For sure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at some point, um, I've gotten the idea you just couldn't keep that up anymore. Is, is that how you came to doing uh, more direct work about that loss, or how did that come about? Yeah, I was an adult at this point. I was uh, in my mid-20s, and um, this is a very hard story. Uh, you know, I... I um, you know, I was married. I got married. I, you know, I had been saying all of my life that I really didn't want to have children, and uh, in my 20s, early 20s, I fell in love with a man who had lots of, had several friends who were already having children. And, you know, we would hang out and play with them. And he would see how good I was with kids. And, and you know, he just kept saying to me, you know what, you, you, your, your clock just hasn't started ticking yet. It will. And he really convinced me that it would change when I got married. And um, at some point it would change. And so I went ahead and got married because it was a big, important thing for him to have children. And I was frightened, but I was, you know, I felt somewhat comfortable with his assurances. And um, and then after we got married, a few months later, I got pregnant and I completely freaked out. 
And all I could think of was that I would have this baby and what if I didn't want the baby? What if I didn't want, you know, I was going to be stuck forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did a horrible thing. I had an abortion without, without telling him. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it was over, then I suddenly I began having dreams of Susan telling me that everything was going to be all right. I was I was so stricken with guilt, um, and it felt a lot like the guilt I had when when I was carrying around the secret of the fight that Susan and I had. Mm. And it all kind of got mixed together in this horrible, really horrible period of my life. And I walked away from that marriage. I never, you know, uh, owned up to what I had done. And I entered into therapy. I was a real mess for a while. And um, four years later is when I emerged from that and realized, um, you know, just what a mess I'd sort of made of my own life. And... uh, and why, and um, and then began turning it around. That's that's a very important story in in my ear because uh, it's it's a it's a tremendously potent example of how grief doesn't have a timeline. Uh, you know, there were all those years in between the loss and when you went into therapy where the loss had happened, but the grief was kind of stowed away. Right. And it sounds as if when you finally uh, pulled it out, it was kind of where you had left it, in a sense. That's right. Uh-huh. That's, that fits with my experience of it. It doesn't really move unless you're paying attention, attention to it in some way. Right. Yeah. It felt like... Uh, I mean, I remember even in high school, you know, getting into trouble. I did some shoplifting. You know, I I, I was not an easy teenager. My parents will attest to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think really, I remember thinking to myself, I have this big black hole inside of me. It was, took me years. It took me years in therapy before I put the big black hole inside of me connected to Susan's murder. Uh, <laughs> I mean, of course, a lot of people talk about having a black hole, but you had actually created a specific uh, a specific reference to going to black, yeah? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you you talk as if those four four years were a grief process. Were they also a process of of developing skills? For the grief, or uh, I know you think a lot about resiliency, and uh, to me, it takes some resiliency to even allow the grief because uh, it hurts. <laughs> but right. how did those go together for you? It was just a process where I made the commitment to be in therapy, and little by little, all the pieces unfolded in the way that they, you know they do and they can and they will if you give them permission or invite them up um it's not a straight line that's for sure no no kidding for sure um, it is not right so but but there i was you know just doing the work and then um i really didn't i really didn't know that i was going to create a center for kids grieving a death 
until I got closer to the end of that period. I, I all I could I remember thinking a lot. What a shame that I didn't do this work as close to the time of the death as possible because all the things we were talking about in therapy were all the crazy things I had done after the death and before that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the choices I made, you know, in high school, the choices I made um, as a young adult, uh, you know, getting married, having the abortion, uh, you know, it was, I just wasn't, I just wasn't living a healthy life by any stretch of the imagination, even though I, you know, I was, I held a job and I was successful, you know, in, in my um, education, Um, you know, on the outside, it all looked just fine. But, uh, you know, if you just scratch away at the surface a little bit, there was another, I was living a hidden life that was not healthy at all. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also uh, interested in, you know, you had a loss that, that affected such a large, well, most, many losses affect a large web of people, but your loss was affecting an entire community, I would imagine. And, yeah. And I just wonder what it was like to kind of uh, bring your... It, your exploration back to people I would assume you still had relationships with, like your family and other people you knew from that community. Was that a difficulty or not? Do you mean when I was an adult? And yes, I w- yes, yes. As you changed your relationship with, with that experience, was it hard to communicate with, with other people who had gone through it with you about it? Well, I ha- I moved away at that point. I'd been gone for a long time from from Rockford, Illinois, which is where the murder happened. And um, and in fact, my entire family had moved away there. My brother had gone to college in Arizona, and my sister moved there, and my parents moved there. And so, mm-hmm. really, I there was there were not very many reasons for me to go back there. But with my family, actually, writing the book was the time when ah. they they. I mean, they, they, of course, they were there when I created the center. Sure. And they could see why I did it. Yeah. But um, it was in the writing of the book and doing book readings that they got all of the details. They got the of details. What had, right, mm-hmm. right, right. Well, it's time for our second break. When we get back, I'd really like to talk about your uh, kind of where you're going from here and, and what your vision is for this next phase of your life. And in these few minutes, listeners out there, be sure to go to my host page, Good Grief at Voice America, or my website, weatheringgrief.com. I'm available for individual and couples therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area and for speaking and consulting across the nation. Please also find Mariana Cacciatore at marianacacciatore.com or breadforthejourney.org. Be back soon. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Mariana Cacciatore, whose work, including a book, came out of the early loss of her best friend, Susan. And one thing I've been thinking about, Mariana, is um, that it's, it's clear in my own life, and I've been thinking a lot more about it because of this show, that the experience of transformation is kind of an ongoing and organic thing. Uh, even doing this show, my wife's been dead since 1995, but I directly connect doing this with that loss. And I, I wonder, you know, it sounds as if you have a dream of this this potential uh, nonprofit you'd like to do that seems so connected with that early experience. Do you, do you see that? Uh, hmm. kind of evolve, evolution as well? Is that what it's like for you? I absolutely do. And, you know, I, I really think I, in my, uh, left to my own devices, I couldn't have dreamed this up, this kind of life mm-hmm. up if I had tried. That, um, you know, that really when I moved to California, I was in my early 40s, and I just knew I needed a little bit of a break from the world of grief. It felt at that point as though my entire life had been defined by grief. And I basically said, you know, to to God, to spirit, to that unknowable thing that's greater than us, um, listen, I don't know what my next thing is going to be, I don't know what my next work is going to be, but I know you do. And uh, I'll do my part, you know, I'll look in the newspaper, I'll apply for jobs, I'll pay attention to my dreams, I'll pay attention to my inclinations. Um, But I need you to do your part too. Let me know what it is you see me doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I My requirement is that I need to do work that makes a difference in the quality of life on Earth. That's really all I ask. And within (laughs) that, you had to remind the great beyond. (laughs) (laughs) I did 
Well, I, well, it, I this I has to, to be in it, okay? <laughs> I think I also had to really be saying it for me that, uh-huh. you know, that at that point, you know, I had had one long job, one that I created myself that was making a difference in the quality of life on earth. And now I was at a crossroads. And so, you know, would I, what, what, what was the next thing? I wasn't, I, you know, I didn't feel at that point like I was ready to be the founder of something of my own. And I didn't really know what was in the cards for me. And, you know, when I think about it now, I think about, you know, moving into philanthropy and really uh, a philanthropy that's sort of a grassroots neighborhood philanthropy, which, you know, truly we didn't even use the word philanthropy in those days. We just simply called it generosity because, you know, the organization is filled with ordinary volunteers who raise a little bit of money and give it away with some friends to people who are doing cool things in a community. And we give it away with no fanfare and we give it away with no strings attached. And, you know, that is the work of Bread for the Journey. But, of course, how was I to know that now looking on my life and I'm seeing this connection between grief and generosity that is so deeply profound that really isn't articulated anywhere. I had to actually live it before it became visible that even I was doing that. Um, So, like I said, it just feels like something far greater than me has been, you know, pulling the puppet strings. And of course, you know, I, I, I have to say yes. Uh, you know, I have participated in my life. I have mm-hmm. said yes to this work, uh, and we have free will, obviously. But having said yes, uh, I now find myself in this place where I feel like I have a, a, the, the next step of the journey has been laid out before me, and I'm still saying yes, and it's big. My friends Stephen and Andrea Levine, they talk about how you have to use the Braille method, which they mean, you know, feel your way along. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if you and you if you feel the the you know, a wall in your way, well, that's not the direction, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I like that image. I just kinda had an image of you of each of us, I guess, in a cave sort of crawling along in the dark, but we can feel our way. Oh, yeah, that way. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. good. Right, right, but I, but right. I also feel, I, you know, I know that you're very interested in the idea of resiliency. And to me, it takes quite a bit of resiliency to follow yourself in that way. Do you think? Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that we're born resilient. You know, we just have to, we just keep doing things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, like there's courage and there's there's times when we don't feel like we're courageous. And um, for me, I was a voracious uh, reader. I loved reading stories of other people's lives. And, um, and so I would try to emulate people who I saw, you know, in books who had taken courageous leaps and, um, you know, and I discovered I was quite a survivor, uh, you know, it didn't always feel that way. And actually, truth be told, 
One of the things I've struggled the most with in my life is an inferiority complex. Mm. Like, really, it's hard to imagine that there are still, with the things I've done in my life, there's still this, you know, lingering feeling of, can I really do that? Or I'm not capable or I'm not worthy or, Mm -hmm. and now, I mean, I'm old enough now, you know, that I just, I look at it more objectively when it rises But it still rises, not as frequently anywhere near as frequently as it used to. And I'm awake to it, um, but still it's there. And Mm -hmm. I say, yes, yes, I hear you. And (laughs) how do I move out courageously? And one of the other things I have learned in my lifetime that I think has been a huge, huge factor in my resiliency is... Um, having people to talk to about what's going on so that, number one, I'm not carrying it alone with this kind of going round in circles the way it does in someone's head when they're not talking out loud to somebody else about their issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Having friends who I trust, who listen well, who are encouraging, who can reflect back what they see, who, um, you know, who love me Mm -hmm. and who, uh, who trust me and who see me. Uh, just and laugh with me, even uh, cry with me, mm. makes all the difference in the world. The times when I've been my darkest are when I haven't made that leap and uh, felt courageous enough to share with somebody what heavy thing is going on in my life. Because your good friend is going to say, oh, it's a Mariana insecurity moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, they won't. Right. they won't take it as a sum total of any sort. Well, you know, they—they're these are friends who have seen me through so much. They know my resilience. They know my courage. They know my strength, and they just see this as a human moment. It's all it really is. It's That's a human it is. moment. That's, That's right. And kind of a, you know, I think of of different qualities as kind of on an arc on the other side of, on the other end of the arc from insecurity would be real humility, which I know you cultivate too, kind of a sense of being a a small part of a huge universe. Uh, Yeah, you know, it's interesting about humility. I think that, um, you know, my problem, the problem that I've carried around, you know, feeling insecure in this world, a bit of that actually was helpful in the development of humility. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 I, you know, we don't ever want to be people who are walking through the world unsecure, insecure. But there is something about that 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 kind of I'm not sure I can really do this. That again levels the playing field where you really feel like there are many people in the world who feel the way I'm feeling right now and that we're, none of us are immune from periods of doubt or insecurity or, um, you know, weakness. Sure, absolutely. I so agree with that. And, and it's also not courage if you're not walking past fear. Right, right. Right, then it's right. then it's foolhardy 
or <laughs> some others. Yeah, people but, think courage is one of those things like these big, brave superheroes that we see in the movies, you know, but that's not true at all, that I think true courage has in it um, a, 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 re- a set of real eyes that sees the danger and says, yes, I'm going to do it anyway. Anyway, I, I, I'm on your page with that one. <laughs> right, right, um, right. So all of that, uh, you are at a precipitous kind of cliff moment. Uh, I know you left your previous job. Right. And you're considering doing this uh, center, but you're not completely decided. So I imagine this must be a moment of exhilaration and maybe some fear both. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm still very much connected to Bread for the Journey as a volunteer. They've beautifully given me this title, Chief Inspiration Officer. Which I love so much. (laughs) And I'm doing the radio show. I'm doing exactly the kinds of things I want to be doing, actually, for the Center for Grief, Generosity, and Love. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to be the Chief Inspiration Officer. I want to be, I'm writing a blog for Bread for the Journey, and I'm doing the radio show for Bread for the Journey. And I am guiding uh, the organization, you know, with whatever training I can give, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the years, 16 years of being at the helm. I absolutely love this organization. I'm so grateful for everything I learned. And now it's time to to do something of my own, I think. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, I say I think, you know, I, I, I mean, I, 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 what I'm doing every week is going out and meeting people who I know and sitting down with them and telling them about this idea of the Center for Grief, Generosity, and Love and seeing where that takes me next. Um, as I see it today, the center is a place where both children and adults can come and get support and guidance around a whole range of losses. Uh, at Children to Children, we we just worked with loss around a death. And uh, what my goal is now is to to widen the picture of uh, what it is that 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 we that we call a significant loss, and um, and to also enlarge the picture of what that landscape looks like by bringing in the whole piece around generosity and love. And, um, you know, a dream of mine would be to uh, also, um, you know, bring in things like creativity, grief, so, and, and move it, help people to really see the value of doing something creative with that deep experience of loss, whether it be, you know, songwriting or filmmaking or a painting a picture or writing a poem, but that it's a very uh, alive and vibrant and rich and fertile time as well. And... Um, I want to work with teenagers and help them become volunteers with the organization so that they understand and begin to recognize losses at an early enough age that they know that they can survive, um, that they can recognize the losses of their life and address them and survive and know that others survive as well. And there's many, uh, (laughs) many pieces to this. Well, I, we have the blessing to live in the same area, so I hope that I can contribute in some way because it sounds wonderful. Mm, and well, I'm sure. I, I am also just so glad that we made this, this hour happen. I've just enjoyed talking with you so much, and 
I know we'll be talking again. Thank you so much. I'm really happy that you had me on the show. So delighted. Thanks. It's been great. It's been a great, great you're, hour. You're welcome. And thank you, too. I hope you out there will all join me next week when Lily Myers Kaplan will be here. We'll be talking about two rare birds, Lily's book about the loss of her sister and brother-in-law within nine months of each other and their parents' deaths as well. Be sure to listen in to hear how those losses, along with some others, transformed Lily's ideas about herself and her life and deepened her work and her life. And again, please go to my host page at Voice America to connect with me. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.